If you have a Bible, we're going to start in Mark chapter 14 tonight. So we're going to look at the first 11 verses, and the title of the message is going to be The Cost of Sacrifice. So we're in Mark 14, beginning in verse 1, and it says, After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And she brake the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and had been given to the poor, and they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? For she has wrought a good work on me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you will, you may do them good. But me you have not always, and she has done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the bearing. Truly I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she has done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priest to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad. And they promised to give him money, and he sought how he might conveniently betray him. And Lord, we just ask that with open hearts as we come before you and your word that once again... You'll speak to us, instruct us, and show us the contrast between those that are loyal to you and those that aren't. And we thank you that you'll teach us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're having begin here in Mark chapter 14, it's the literal acting out of the parable. I don't know if you remember the parable back in chapter 12 where the husbandmen or the tenant farmers, they had a mutiny or rebellion against the owner of the vineyard. And the owner of the vineyard, he sent servant after servant to them. And did they have any respect for him? It said no. It said they beat some, they stoned some, and they killed some. And that's what happened. And so finally, he says, well, surely if I send my only beloved son and they know it's my son, that they'll respect him. And they do what? Instead, they see him coming, they conspire to seize him, to kill him, and it says they were going to cast him out of the vineyard. So in telling that parable, he's speaking to the very ones that he's talking about, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They are the husbandmen, and it says in that, at the end of that parable, they knew that he was talking about them. It got him upset. But they'd been given oversight of God's people, and the prophets had come, and they treated them shamefully, the Bible says. Hadn't treated them well at all. And when he is sent, Jesus is the son that the father sends, the beloved sons. And they know who he is. It says in there they knew who he was, but do they respect him? It says they were jealous of him out of envy. It says they were going to destroy him. And that all started when? That started way back in chapter 3 with the man with the withered hand. It said clear back then they were conspiring, trying to figure out. It uses that word, how they might destroy him. One thing that I think will help us understand these first 11 verses in Mark, what he's doing here, he's using a literary technique that he has used elsewhere in his gospel, and it's called a sandwich technique. And so what he does, he begins to tell a story. Then he interrupts the story with another story to make a point, and then he'll pick up the story that he started again and finish it. 
Another place he's done this, I don't know if you all would remember, but it was clear back in Mark chapter 5. It tells a story about that Jairus comes begging Jesus to come and pray for his dying daughter. And Jesus says, okay, I will. And they begin to walk to Jairus' house. In the middle of when that's happening, all of a sudden what happens? You have the woman with the issue of blood. We have a story within a story. She interrupts what's going on there. She comes up behind him. If I may just touch the hem of his garment, she's desperate. The girl's 12 years old. This woman has been 12 years hemorrhaging. They're both desperate. They're both women. And Jesus heals this woman miraculously. And it says in the account, when she comes, when he's like, who is it that touched me? And when she realized he knew who she was, it says in the account, she fell down and it said she told him everything that had happened all 12 years, how she touched him, how she felt his power come into her body. And it says immediately the blood stopped flowing. You know who's listening to all of that? Who's listening to all of that? J. Iris. Because right as soon as she finishes her story, they come and tell J. Iris, and they said, don't even bother him anymore because your daughter's dead. And so what did Jesus tell him? He says, wait a minute. I encourage you. This thing happened here. Just be encouraged by what you just heard, J. Iris, and we're going on because he told him, he says, be not afraid, J. Iris, only believe. And that's what we have there. The story starts, it's interrupted by another story to prove a point, and then it's finished. It's a sandwich, a sandwich techniques. And that is what Jesus is doing here at the beginning of Mark chapter 14. So we have in these first two verses, we read that the religious leaders, they're plotting to kill Jesus. And then that is interrupted by verses 3 to 9 of this woman Actually, this event that happens in verses 3 to 9 didn't happen here because John gives the same account and he said it was six days before the Passover. This is just two days before the Passover. Mark is not trying to write a chronological biography of Jesus' life. So he inserts this story here. He's not claiming that it happened next after they started plotting. He just puts it in here. And the reason he does, he wants to make a contrast because he goes back in verse 10 where we're back to the plotting and Judas is brought into the picture. So he's trying to make a point. That is what he's doing. So he's laying before us, like I said, the stark contrast of these dark, sinful, sinister motives of Judas and the chief priest. He's contrasting that by inserting this woman who's like a bright light. These are like dark clouds surrounding everything. Inserted in there is this bright light of this woman with this love and loyalty that you don't find. Very rarely do you find it. The bread of the sandwich is what? It's the scheming, the darkness, the evil motivations. And inside the meat is this woman with her love and loyalty. That's what he's contrasting here. That's why he's done what he's done. When we get here into verse 1 and 2, it kind of gives us the setting of the story. And that's critical because the setting is the Passover festival. And that is a huge event in Israel, in the life of Israel. The only place that the Passover could be celebrated was where? It was in Jerusalem. That was the only place. And so we have Jews from all over Israel. They're flocking there. So the normal population of Jerusalem was about 30,000 or so. But when the Passover came, it swelled 10 times that amount. The estimates are it could have been as many, maybe more than 300,000 people are there. And that's quite an increase over a few days. And so the city 
At this point, when they're coming in, it would have been filled with sounds of people, animals. There would have been all kinds of excitement in the air. It would have been a festive atmosphere. The hotels are packed. People are boarding strangers in the surrounding little towns and villages. So it would have had an atmosphere. I would equate it today. It would have been like a state fair. Just a lot of excitement in the air. That Passover celebration for every Jew, what did that remind them of? That reminded them that at one day they were in bondage to Egypt. One time far back, they were being oppressed in all kinds of ways. And through that Passover lamb, through the blood being put on the lintel, the doorpost, they were granted deliverance. And so when these people are gathering here, every year that excitement comes because they're under bondage again, aren't they, to Rome. Economically, they're doing terrible. Most people are poor that are Jews. And so there's this excitement that once again, the Messiah may come and grant this deliverance. What happens as a result of that is there is a constant threat of riots. Wouldn't take much to set it off, led by some religious zealots. Pilate, he has his headquarters are over on the coast in Caesarea. It's nice there. But he moves his headquarters, or where he's operating from, to Jerusalem during this period of time because he wants to monitor the events in case an uprising happens. And so these religious leaders, they know something. They know that if they don't keep the peace, if they allow some kind of religious riot to take place, they're going to lose their position of power. So they don't want to arrest Jesus during the festival. That's what we have here. It's what it says in verse 2. Verse 1, the scribes sought how they might take him by craft or stealth and put him to death. But they said, no, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. Now, here's the thing. They are making what they think is their plan of how they're going to do this. They are saying Jesus is not going to die during the Passover. Isn't that what they're saying? That is what they're saying. The first thing I want us to see here is that they can make all the plans they want to, but the Bible, from cover to cover, teaches that God is in control and not men. You read here, it seems like they're in control of what's going on. They're plotting or whatever. You read Matthew's account, and it shows you that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that is clearly in control of all these events. If you put something there in Mark 14 and turn back to Matthew 26, they are the synoptic gospels. They have similar stories, the same story, just told a little different way. And that's what we have here in Matthew 26, the same story. And I want to look at the first five verses. And it says in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 1, it says, And it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, verse 2, You know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. So he's prophesying right then what's going to happen, isn't he? Well, look what it says in verse 3. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, not on the feast day or during the festival, lest there be an uproar among the people. And Jesus has said just the opposite, because Jesus prophesied that he was going to be betrayed during the feast of the Passover. And the leaders are saying, no, that's not when we want it to happen. And we're conspiring otherwise. They got other plans. Well, let me just tell you, when the Lord Jesus Christ makes a prophecy and men decide they're going to do something else, who do you think is going to win that battle? I mean, really. What happens, though? In steps who? Verses 10 to 11, you go back to... Mark, who steps in 
kind of changes their plans. In verse 10, it says, And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priest to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they're glad because, man, here's somebody. Well, we thought we'd have to wait till the festival's over. But no, he's telling us, wait a minute, fellas. I can help you get him when it's nighttime and when the crowds are away because I know what goes on. I know his every movement. And they said they're happy about that. He volunteers a time and a place. He's going to be away from the crowds and be at night. And they heartily welcome that, don't they? But here's the thing we need to remember. Who is orchestrating the timetable? These men think they are, don't they? Even when they get Judas involved. But the Bible says otherwise. Because here's what Jesus said himself in John 10. He says, therefore... Does my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again? And he says, no man takes it from me. Those are Jesus's words. He says, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. And so God the father has determined from all eternity, all eternity past, that the Lord Jesus Christ was going to fulfill the type of the Passover land that was slain for the redemption of Israel. He was going to die, doesn't matter what men say, on the same day that the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in Jerusalem. Because he's going to fulfill the word of John the Baptist, another prophet. And this is going to happen, not secretly, this is going to happen in the eyes of all the world, which it did. And John said this, Behold, when he saw Jesus early in his ministry, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God, he said. And God's going to show that that's who he was. And he is going to be the one in control of the crucifixion because men were never in control. God and Jesus always were. Acts 2, 22 to 23 says this, Peter said this to the leaders of Israel and the people of Israel, ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. It says, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and have slain. He's saying it was your wicked hands that crucified the Lord. You're going to be responsible for it. But it was God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge that orchestrated all of it. We need to see that. Men were never in control. And here, if you would turn back to Psalm 2, see that clearly this is just a fulfillment of Psalm 2. Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? And here's what, what happened here, what we're reading in Mark 14. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers took counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And what does it say? He that sits in the heavens will do what? Laugh. And laugh at what? Laugh at their plans. And it says, and he shall have them in derision. The Lord will have them in derision. And then he shall speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. He says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. And that's speaking of the resurrection. 
He said, Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thine possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And he says, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. He's telling them, you guys don't have the power you think you do. Because he says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. And blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So it says God will laugh. That word It says he'll taunt, he'll mock. That's what derision means, the plans of the wicked against his anointed. And they had plans. And they thought when they crucified him, they thought they're just doing to him whatever they want to and getting away with it. And God says, you don't realize you're doing exactly what I want you to do, even though you're doing what you want to do, but you're just fulfilling my will. So how does that apply for us? So taking it a little bit away from the crucifixion, the fact that God is in control of all events, because to be in control of this event, he has to be in control of all events that have ever taken place. And he is. That ought to be a great comfort for us. Because Jesus had to look at, he's got the Jewish leadership, the Roman governor, one of his disciples, all of them seem to be getting their way against him. He was able to rest in the fact that he knew his father and himself were in control of everything that happened. Nothing happened by accident. He told Pilate this. He stands before Pilate, and Pilate's like, don't you know that I have the power to either kill you or let you go? And Jesus said to him, you could have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. No power at all unless God allowed it. That's what the Bible teaches. So let me ask you something. Does the devil have power over us no matter what circumstances we're in? Does he? No power at all. He's held by God on a short leash, as it said, isn't he? And God can take him and move him and stop a trial anytime he wants to. So a brother last night was sharing. I thought this was good. He said, the Lord showed him. He's in in a trial. And he said, he showed me that it's just like Israel by the Red Sea. You know, God led them that way to where they're going to get trapped. And he allowed Pharaoh's army to be behind them to where they had nowhere to go. And it appears to them like, what in the world is going on here? He's killing us. He's setting us up, and we are in big-time trouble. But he's standing in the heavens and looking down at Pharaoh, and like it says, they're conspiring against his people. It's saying he laughs. He knew what was going to happen the whole time, didn't he? Never caught by surprise. He's just trying to teach his people to trust him. And so you can know, if our hearts are right with the Lord, it doesn't matter how dark your circumstances are. He's in control, and there is that light at the end of the tunnel. And it's not another train trial coming your way. It really is. It's God's deliverance. Amen? I'm telling you, God is faithful. Moving on here, back to Mark 14. That was kind of an introduction. And the main point of this story in our message tonight is, the question we're asking ourselves in this story is, what does this anointing, this woman anointing Jesus, what does that mean? And we're going to look at what did it mean to the woman and what did it mean to the disciples and Judas in particular? And what did it mean to Jesus? And last, what does it mean to us? 
And so let's look first at what does it mean to the woman. Look what it says in verse 3. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and just as an aside, he probably was no longer a leper. That's probably how he's known. Jesus, I'm sure, healed him of his leprosy, because if he was a true leper, he couldn't be having guests in his house. It wouldn't happen. But being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and she broke it on his head. And so that jar, it was in a jar, not a literal box. The jar itself was expensive, but the perfume spikenard was very expensive, extremely. It came from India. And Mark here describes it as very precious or costly. And in verse 5, we're told that it's the equivalent of 300 denarius. And 300 denarius is just about a year's wages for a common laborer. Let's just, in figuring that, if you want to be conservative, you could say that would be the equivalent in today's dollars of $25,000. Now, I know some women in here probably got some expensive perfume, but I doubt if anybody has a vial worth $25,000 of perfume. I mean, that's expensive perfume, isn't it? The thing is, a woman back then, they didn't have jobs like they do today. There's not a woman who would have been able to save up $25,000 or the equivalent a year's salary to go buy this perfume. So more than likely, it doesn't tell us this, it was an heirloom. And it probably was hers to use as a dowry for when she got married. And so it's something to be highly treasured. Can we put it that way? This would have been something she would have highly treasured for her to take this perfume to break off the neck. It had a skinny neck and it was wider at the bottom. To break off that neck and to pour it on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of it was a great sacrifice, very costly. Who was this woman? If you read Matthew and Mark's account, it just says a woman. It doesn't name her. But John, given the same account, tells us who it is. Anybody know? It's Mary. So if you would, turn over to John 12. John 12, beginning in verse 1, and it says, And then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead, and there he made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. And it says, And then Mary took a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed, here it says, the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. And then said one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence, or denarius, and given to the poor? And this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. And then Jesus said, let her alone against the day of my burying has she kept this. For the poor always you have with you, but me you have not always. What she's pouring out on his head is the greatest thing she owned. It was her life. And here's the point. The reason I had us read this is because I think it is highly significant that we know that this woman is Mary. Because we can look at her life and we can see why she would have this great love for our Lord Jesus Christ. What's one of the first things you think of when you think about Mary? Where was she sitting? Sitting at his feet, doing what? Hearing his word. And we just talked about in the book of James, what did James say we should be? Quick to hear. And I'm saying she is the living definition of that. 
quick to hear. Jesus told her sister Martha, he said, Martha, you know, you are worried and bothered about so many things. You don't have time to hear. You don't have time to settle yourself down like we talked on Sunday. And hear my word. He said, but not Mary. He said, one thing is needful and only one thing. And he says, Mary has chosen that good thing which shall not be taken away from her. He says, that's not going to be taken away from her. So Mary is sitting there and she is soaking in. She is receiving the words of Jesus and it is having an effect on her. And it's given her spiritual insight because of that. She's not bored. She's not falling asleep while he's talking. She's not. She's paying attention. We're in John 12 still. Look what it says in John 11, verses 28 and 29. And I'm sure she wasn't laughing either while he was speaking. John 11, 28, it says, When she had said so, she went her way. Martha tells Mary that Jesus is coming. She went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly saying, the master is come and he calls for you. And look what it says. As soon as Mary heard that, what did she do? She arose quickly and came to him. Arose quickly. And so why did she run to him? Look what it says in verse 32. And when Mary was come where Jesus was, it says she saw him. And she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if you had been here, I've heard your words. I've seen the things you've done. She says, my brother would not have died. What's happened here in chapter 12? That's the true setting. He's in Bethany. What's caused her to come and take the greatest thing she owns, the thing that meant the most to her of all things, and to break that on the head of Jesus? Because what did Jesus go on to do for her brother? And she thought he was gone. If you'd have been here, he wouldn't have had to die, but he's dead. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand who I am. But he gave her a revelation of that, didn't he? Because Lazarus was raised from the dead. So he showed her who he was. So when Mary is breaking open the greatest treasure that she possessed, and that represented her heart and life, this was not some spur-of-the-moment decision that she made. It wasn't. Because she considered what she was doing, I believe. And she's given all she has. She recognizes in the Lord Jesus Christ that he is her sin-bearer, he's her savior. She recognizes a lot more than any of the other disciples did. She's given all she has, just like the poor widow that we read about not too long ago, right? Both gave all. And I like what Spurgeon said about this. He says, by breaking open the bottle, by this woman breaking open that bottle, you couldn't give some. When you did that, when you broke open that bottle, you couldn't just give some of it. You had to give all, he said. And it was a picture of Mary's heart. And I would say as a person has a greater understanding of the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and what he's done for them. I'm saying the Bible teaches this. So will their outpouring of love for him increase. That's the way it works. It's just like the earlier story of another woman. It's not the same one in Luke 7 that it said she came behind him and she also had expensive women and anointed his feet and used her hair and cried. The Pharisees despise her for the love she's shown to him. And Jesus said this. He said, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. And I think it's the same cases with this Mary. She saw the what he was going to do. 
that he was the resurrection and the life, and that he would give life and a new heart and the power. And his words were life. She recognized all there was about the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And I'm saying, when you understand what he's done to give us forgiveness and life and healing and deliverance, it will be no great sacrifice to give him your all. And when you read the true saints of old that were willing to sacrifice their lives, and some of them gave away fortunes for the sake of going out on the mission field, every single one of them had had that vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, and no sacrifice for them was too great. And there was a man, William Chalmers Burns. He's a, not a well-known missionary, but he's probably one of my favorite ones to ever read about. But he was an evangelist in Scotland. And everywhere he went in Scotland, huge revivals broke out. And people were giving him just tons of money. And in the middle of all of that, Burns believed that God showed him to go be a missionary in China. Nobody was being a missionary in China then. And he walked away from all of that. It would have been the equivalent of millions and millions of dollars. He walked away from all of it and went and did work in China. And he was there when Hudson Taylor came. And he helped Hudson Taylor, who was a well-known missionary. I think most people have heard of him. Burns helped him through, taught him how to live like one of the natives so he could relate to him, got him grounded. Hudson Taylor says, I don't know if I'd have made it without him. And they found William Chalmers Burns. When he died, when he finally died, he had this little box that had a Bible and hardly any money in it, maybe a few pennies, nothing. He died a pauper. But he didn't regret any of it in his writings and what he said. And <laughs> he's not over there bemoaning the fact of where he was. Because Hudson Taylor says, my fellowship with him was like fellowship with no one else. And they got separated because of some kind of rebellion or war, and that just broke Hudson Taylor's heart. But that's what will happen when you understand what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Steve Green had that song, the older people remember it, the younger ones probably not, but it was called Broken and Spilled Out. And the words are taken, I believe, from this text. One day, a plain village woman, driven by love for her Lord, she recklessly poured out a valuable essence, disregarding the scorn. And once it was broken and spilled out, a fragrance filled all the room, like a prisoner released from his shackles, like a spirit set free from the tomb. And the chorus went like this, broken and spilled out, just for love of you, Jesus, my most precious treasure lavished on thee broken and spilled out and poured at your feet. In sweet abandon, let me be spilled out and used up for thee. That's a great song. And that's the way our lives should be. Amen? Amen. That's what the Bible teaches. And so we move on and back to Mark 14. The next thing I want to look at is what does this woman anointing the head of Jesus mean to the disciples and Judas? In particular, and look in verse 4. It says... And there were some that had indignation within themselves when they see what she's done and said, why this waste of the ointment made for it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And it says they murmured against her. Who are these people? Mark says, and there were some. Matthew tells us that it was the disciples. And we just read in John, who did John say it was that was complaining? Judas. So you put it all together, you put all three accounts together, and I believe you have Judas. I think he had a lot of influence on those guys. You have 
Judas leading the charge against this woman, and the other disciples are kind of chiming in. The disciples aren't the same as Judas. They're regenerate people. Judas was never a regenerate person. He never had a changed heart. But the thing with them, they did not yet have the same burning love this woman had for the Lord Jesus Christ, did they? That is going to come later. Because we keep reading, if you remember, as we've gone through Mark time after time after time, he's having to get on them about your dull of hearing, slow of hearts. And it wasn't until after his resurrection that it says he opened their understanding and it all made sense to them what had happened. So they're just not quite getting it yet. If you're a little slow or you're not doing well spiritually or let's say you're backslidden, what tends to happen when it's that way and you get around somebody that's on fire for the Lord, you tend to get embarrassed, don't you, by somebody that they've just got this unrestrained love for the Lord. I'm just telling you, that's the way it is. Have you ever been in certain crowds and you're with somebody and they're talking about the Lord and you're thinking inside, man, I just wish you'd tone it down a little bit. You know, you're embarrassing me. This just just isn't the right setting. This isn't the right time or place. Just kind of keep it for church or when we're fellowshipping in the car. You ever been through that? Everybody's looking at me like they never have. All right. You never have. What about 1 Samuel 6? You remember that story? David was so excited about bringing the ark back, wasn't he? And it says that David danced before the Lord with all his might, and he was girded with a linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord, it says, with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And it says, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael... Everyone remembers her. Saul's daughter looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And what does it say happened with her? Despised him in her heart. And Michael's looking at him and she's saying, well, how glorious is the king of Israel today? Because she's embarrassed about it, isn't she? You're the king and I'm married to you and you're just making a spectacle in front of all these people. And David was like, wait a minute, woman. It's the Lord is the one that set me as king and put your daddy down. And he says, I'll do worse than this for him. I'll humiliate you worse than this for God's sake. <laughs> that's the way he looked at it. But that's the kind of reaction the disciples they're having to this woman with what she's doing. I think they're embarrassed. The word, it says they're indignant against her. That's what it says there in verse 4. And there were some, they had indignation. That means highly displeased. They are not happy at all with what she's doing. And it goes on down in verse 5. And it says, when it says they murmured against her, that's the word for snorting. Like you snort at somebody when you're that upset. And they are like looking at this like, what a waste. But you got to think about what are they saying? Really? Was this really a waste? They're saying that what is devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ is wasted, but what is devoted to the poor is invested. That's what they're saying, isn't it? And they've got it all upside down. Because here's the way it works. If you invest all of your love in the Lord Jesus Christ, like she's done here, and then you help the poor as a result of that, it's going to matter. But the Bible teaches you can go around and do all the good deeds. You can build all the houses you want to. You can erect all the churches you want to for places. And if the Lord Jesus Christ isn't the number one love of your life, none of it will matter. That's what it's saying in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and have not love. What does he say? He says, I am nothing. 
So Jesus died on the cross. Many looked on, and when they're looking on and seeing what's happened there, they said, what a waste. They're saying, what a waste of a life, because so much good could have been done through him for the world. And that's what Judas thought, didn't he? He's looking on and he's thinking, that woman wasted $25,000 pouring all that stuff on his head. He's not worth it. In essence, that's what the disciples are saying too. But we know something though with Judas, because John tells us that Judas really, what he wanted was that $25,000 in the bag that he was holding so that he could skim some of the money because Judas wasn't so much in love with the poor, he was in love with himself. Because do you know what Judas really thought Jesus was worth? How much did he sell him for? 30 pieces of silver. Do you know what 30 pieces of silver is worth? $600. Now, he's not worth 25000 like this woman. She didn't care. She didn't care how much that perfume would have been worth. But I wonder if Judas would have thought our Lord's life was worth more than $600 after he hung himself. I wonder if he seemed like the Lord's life was wasted then. I wonder if he thought to himself, whose life was just wasted? It's a question to ask. Because really, truly, we've saying this tonight, any life that's not fully consecrated to the Lord Jesus Christ is a wasted life. And we need to listen. If we are not delivered of a love of money and the love of the world, I'm saying one day you will betray the Lord. That's Luke 14. Jesus says, if any man comes to me and hate not father, mother, sister, brother, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And he goes on to say, whosoever there be of you that forsaketh not all that he has cannot be my disciple. And those are hard words. But in between all of that, he's saying you need to sit down and count the cost. And make sure you're willing to give all before you come and follow me. That's what the message is. You know what the name Judas, you look it up, I looked it up in my Oxford English Dictionary that I have on my desk. And when you look at Judas, one of the definitions it gives is a person who betrays a friend. A person who betrays a friend. And I'm saying, have you ever failed? to speak out for the Lord Jesus Christ because you're worried about protecting your reputation or because of fear of rejection. So you got to think about it. The Lord Jesus calls us his friends, doesn't he? That's what he says in John 15, 15. He says, henceforth, I call you not servants, but I have called you friends. And so if Jesus calls us his friends and we consider ourselves to be his friends, let me put it this way. We should be able to stand with him, shouldn't we? And for him in this world, shouldn't we? We should be able to stand with him and for him. Amen. The next thing we want to look at is what did the anointing, what did this anointing, it meant something to the Lord Jesus Christ too, what this woman did to him. Look what it says in verse six. And Jesus said, after they're murmuring against her, he said, let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She has wrought a good work on me. He says, for you have the poor with you always. And whatsoever you will, you may do them good. But he says, me, you have not always. And he says, she's done what she could. She's come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. And he tells them there in verse six, he says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Why trouble you? In other words, he's like, why are you guys giving her a hard time? 
So when he says, she has wrought a good work on me, that's what he says. I like what the ESV, the NIV, and the RSV versions, how they translate that part of the verse where it says, she's wrought a good work on me. They say it this way, she has done a beautiful thing to me. And I'm saying, there's a word for good. The word that is used there, it's more than just good. It's a beautiful thing. She's done a beautiful thing to me. And like I said, this is put in here, this woman's devotion. It stands out like a bright light in contrast to Judas's betrayal and disloyalty. So I'm like, wow, I'd never thought about that. But except for Judas's kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is the only expression of love that the Lord Jesus Christ received during his passion. During this whole time when he's arrested in the garden and so on. The only expression of love comes from this woman. What do you think that meant to him? What do you think that meant to him? And, and he knows what's coming up. He's not wondering. He knows better than anyone else what's coming. He's been talking about it. And I'm sure, to put it this way, it warmed his heart. Because that's the personal devotion that he wants from all of his disciples. That's the same personal devotion that he really wants from us. He wants it from us. He wants us to give us, him that kind of love and care. And so he tells him, leave her alone. What she's done, it's a beautiful thing. Because this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that she's given to openly show her love and devotion to me. And they're thinking to themselves, but what about the poor? What about the poor? Now, Jesus isn't saying that caring for the poor isn't important. And the Old Testament and the New Testament, and even Jesus himself did it constantly, right? It's filled with admonitions for us to care for the poor. Helping the poor comes in second at this time, and I would add, at all times. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, For you have the poor with you always, and whensoever you will, you may do them good. But me, he says, you have not always. And so what's he doing? He's putting himself in value above everything else. And there is no mere man could do that. For me or you to say that would be blasphemy. Putting himself above everything else because the value of the gift, it signifies the value of the one to whom it is given. The Lord Jesus Christ is worth our all. He is worth everything that we have to give. He is. So look what it says in verse 8. He says, she has done what she could. Literally, that means what she had she did. So she had this great gift to give to the Lord, and she poured it on his head. That's what she did. What she had, she did, and he accepted it. What about that poor woman with the two mites? That's all she had. But she gave it to him, and he accepted that just in the same way. Those two mites were just as accepted. So both women are what? Examples of total commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, holding nothing back. Neither one of them held anything back, and neither one of them were wasting what they gave, were they? I mean, if anything, that woman putting those two mites in there to that corrupt system that was run by all those the money changers or whatever, if anybody was wasting, she was, but she wasn't. She was doing what God had asked her to do. And so what we're seeing here in this text, what we're seeing tonight, the message is the need for total devotion for Jesus. Amen? And when we do that, 
then our care for the poor, because that's what will come out of that. Because the first commandment is, Jesus is saying, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what she's showing. The second commandment, he said, is like that. Because out of that comes, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So when you've given everything to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will take care of the poor. But it will be out of genuine concern, not like Judas. Judas didn't have genuine concern. You cannot separate the two, but they have to be in their proper order, don't they? And Jesus said in Matthew 25, 40, he says, I tell you the truth, that whatsoever you did for one of the least of these brethren of mine, you did it for who? He says, you did it for me. So you showed your love for me by how you ministered to these other people that were in need, these other brothers and sisters. What we need to remember, what we need to get out of this is that when we do any sacrifice to help others, and it's because of our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he will accept that just as warmly as he accepts the devotion that this woman gave. Just the same. He looks at it just the same. So he looks at what we've done when we help somebody out and we show concern for the poor because, first of all, it's coming out of our devotion to him. He looks at that just like with her and says, that is a beautiful thing that you've done. That's the way he looks at it. So whether it's giving, helping, praying, encouraging somebody, that's what Hebrews 6.10 is saying. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Mary did what she could, and Jesus accepted it. He was pleased with that. He commended her for it. It's the same for us. Amen. That should be an encouragement to help people out and not feel like, what difference does it make? He says, it's not in vain. Our work is not in vain in the Lord. Lastly here, look in verse 9. We'll look at what does this mean for us briefly. And he says, verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she has done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. And one thing we need to see here, Jesus is already, he hasn't died yet, he's already prophesying that when he's resurrected, that a gospel is going to be spread throughout the whole world. And what he's saying there is, he's telling them in advance that his life is not in vain. His death will not be in vain. But what he promises is that that good deed that that woman has done, it will never be forgotten. He's saying her sacrifice will be remembered wherever the gospel is preached. What we need to know is there are two things that are crucial to gospel proclamation when you're proclaiming the gospel. And the first thing is, and the biggest thing, is that we're speaking of God's love that was demonstrated to us on the cross. And that the Lord Jesus Christ became our substitute on that cross, took the punishment that was due us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Christ died for me. He loved me and gave his life for me. That is the first thing. But the second thing is crucial to understand, and that, I believe, is what he's talking about with this woman, and that is the result of that. The result of that work. When people begin to understand when that gospel is presented, and they come to understand that I deserve to go to hell, but he took my place, took the full punishment, drank all the wrath of God that was coming my way. When people begin to understand his work on the cross, what will happen? 
That's why he's saying this woman is a memorial to that. You will pour out your life in love to him in response to that. And I think that's what he's talking about here. The gospel, the good news, the Lord has died in our place. Make us new creatures. That's what's happened to her. Your hearts are transformed. New desires. And that's what Mary is showing here. I mean, I never had any desire to worship the Lord, not truly at all, before I became a Christian. I had no devotion to Him. I never did anything out of concern for Him. Everything I did before God came and changed my life, before I truly saw what He had done on the cross and gave myself to Him, was all done for me. And He's saying, look at her. She's doing everything for Him. Giving her heart. She's pouring out her heart and pouring out that perfume. And he's saying that is the result of the gospel. And he's saying so as a result of that, she's going to be spoken of everywhere this gospel is preached. And we're talking about her tonight. (laughs) And that's the song. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust him and in his presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. That's the result of the gospel coming into your life and your heart when you understand it. Let me just end in saying this. Our lives, when it's all said and done, they're either going to represent Mary or we're going to be representative of Judas. So there are going to be some that their lives are going to be like Judas and the world will look at them and they'll say, What a waste. Why this waste? Did it have to be this way? Or, hopefully everyone in here, their lives are going to be like Mary. A beautiful fragrance that's poured out for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lives that will forever be a memorial like hers to His grace and His love and His power demonstrated in our lives. All for Jesus. Because what does the Bible say? The Lord says, all that honor me, he says, I will honor, right? And that's what the Lord did to her. She honored him and she's forever honored. And it'll be the same for every believer. Amen. It says in Proverbs, the memory of the just shall be blessed. And that doesn't mean he'll keep you from having Alzheimer's. What he's talking about is the memory, their memorial, their lives will be blessed. That's what he's saying. Amen. Let's make that our goal. Amen. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you, Lord, for this word you've given us tonight. And I ask that you'll give all of us the heart that you gave Mary and that we see clearly. I ask you to open all of our eyes. We can all see more clearly, Lord, the work you've done on the cross and your total love and devotion to us so that we can in return, Lord, give our lives and everything we have in total devotion to you that we can pour out our hearts, our lives, everything we have at your feet, Lord. And that you, we can see that you will accept that from us, just as you accepted it from her. And you'll say that what we've done is a beautiful thing. And that's what we want to hear. Well done, thou good and faithful servant in the end. And I ask you'll give us all here hearts to do that. And we pray that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.